We would like to thank Mazapai, an artisan pizzeria and bakery in Louisville, Kentucky, for letting us use their loft to record this episode. Their service, food, and atmosphere all blew our expectations away. So next time you're driving through the area, we highly recommend you take a lunch break to visit this quaint local spot. The Iliad and the Odyssey, Plato's Republic, The Epic of Gilgamesh, Hammurabi's Code, Confucius, The Bible. There's much agreement concerning the nature of all of these writings. They are ancient, they are well written, they are valuable, and they have shaped history. Some would prefer to keep this list intact, and they are happy to view them all as peers and common amongst themselves. These are ancient writings that readers would do well to spend time in. Others would prefer to separate one of these writings into its own category, a category that no other writing in the history of mankind belongs in. This writing is the Bible, a collection of writing written over thousands of years and by many different authors. This is the ancient writing that some would argue ought to be placed into a category on its own. They say that what marks this writing out from amongst the rest is that behind the many authors, there is one author. God himself, they believed, has inspired these writings and in doing so has elevated them above the common. These are supernatural writings. But what is the Bible? How is it collected? What sorts of writings does it contain? Does it really deserve to be elevated above the other ancient writings we have? Was it really authored by God? We discuss all this and more today on The Exchange. I'm Alex Turkmani, and this is The Exchange Podcast. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. It's good to be with you. Uh, this is episode four, part two of the Bible episodes. Um, if you have not listened to part one, I would implore you, entreat you, beg of you, <laughs> beckon you. We mean it. Call lovingly, call you lovingly into the wilderness to listen to part one of the Bible episode before. You come back and listen to part two. Alex, no matter how lovingly you ever called me into a wilderness, I would not go. <laughs> you obviously don't know how lovingly I can. <laughs> allure, I can allure you into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you. Dude, I thought that I would say that I could not be Lord, but now you've convinced me. I might mm. just be Lord. I, I, I assure you that you would. And, that and is kind of creepy I, imagery. And I hope that I can. That's, that's all right. I mean, I know what it means. Don't you don't have to follow Alex into the wilderness to listen to the first episode. You just have to go to our page and find it. And it's not a wilderness. I hope that I can allure the listeners to listen to the first episode. That's, that was the whole point of this. I hope I can allure them to listen. To Check the first out Hosea episode. two if you want to know what Alex is talking yes, about. Read Hosea two. Actually, yeah. read the whole read the whole book of Hosea. In fact, in speaking fact, of the Bible, read the Bible, which is what we're talking about today. Oh. Uh, Boys, I want you to, uh, before we get going here, uh, I want you to describe the surroundings, where we're at, where we're recording. Uh, give us a little bit of, you know, this is this is radio after all. Uh, give us a little bit of visual here. We are Matsapai Artisan Pizza Restaurant. They've kindly let us borrow their loft to record this morning. Um, we are surrounded by old red brick, almost like you would see in, a, in an old mill, with wooden panels everywhere. Mm. Um there is a really beautiful circular window at the top of the house-shaped roof that is letting in a beautiful natural sunlight this morning. And there are huge doors that are the size of the building. I mean, these doors are probably, what, 40 feet tall, maybe 50? 
They're huge. Yeah, they're and, pretty uh, big. On nice, nice fall and spring days, they'll open up those doors and just let the air come in. And betwixt those doors is a grandfather clock that is uh, a bit taller than the it's doors It's a great themselves. grandfather clock, let's be honest. I, I apologize. He is an immigrant clock. He is from Greece. <laughs> There's an oven uh, where they're cooking uh, some pizza crust getting ready to uh, make some pizzas this afternoon it's a beautiful place i I would i would maybe you guys would disagree but i would describe this as an instagram's artist's dream for sure for sure everything is instagrammable speaking of the bible (laughs) (laughs) Uh, boys i want to take uh the conversation a little bit of a different direction um though i don't think we're going to get out of the controversy yet I think when we get into the conversation of the New Testament, one of the biggest controversial points of the New Testament is how was it assembled, which books were included, which books were not included. And I think a, a lot of the question questions that people have about the Bible kind of stem in that, in that category. So, uh, guys, how was the New Testament uh, assembled and put together? The way that I understand the New Testament was assembled was that the Apostle Paul primarily, which has the, the most books in the New Testament, wrote letters to churches in um, the area of Asia, which is now Turkey, and Rome, etc., Mediterranean included. And there are also four Gospels written by the, the um, Apostle Matthew, Apostle Mark and Luke, who was not an apostle, but was a doctor. Most people believe that he was a doctor at the time, and a I would say probably a um, a history book writer or an appreciator of history. And so he documented in Acts the birth of the first century Christian church and how that message was spread throughout the Roman Empire and. As far as the council, I think you guys have more. And to be and to be clear on that, and to be clear, depending on your view of who wrote Mark, it probably wasn't the Apostle Mark. It probably was John Mark, uh, disciple of Peter, uh, not 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 the Apostle. I retract Christ. my previous statement. Just just to, just to <laughs> make that clear. It, it depends on your view of who wrote it. But. I think you have to be you have to also include it within that that uh, the Bible, the New Testament, seems to show a self awareness of continuing something that was happening in the old testament which is revelation so peter talks about how people twist the words of paul uh like like they do other scriptures so he he puts the writings of paul in the same category as the old testament in 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 saying that paul will quote uh the old testament right alongside with luke uh and is it first timothy or second timothy i think as both authoritative sources and so there's there seems to be there seems to be a self um a self-awareness that what God did in the past and revealing through written documents, God's continuing to do today uh, through these specific writings. So then the question becomes, which of these writings are in and which of these writings are out, which is where it gets dicey and where people are going to give different answers on that. And it is, it's first Timothy five eighteen where Paul quotes uh, the gospel of Luke. One of the things we have to preface the conversation with is I think a lot of people have this idea in their minds where, they think that they're that the, the the books that were included in the New Testament canon uh, are a small minority of the books that were available and written around the time of the New Testament canon, and that is just not a a uh, accurate statement. There were there were only a few that were in question 
Now there were, I'm sure there were a lot of writings, but but there were certain criteria uh, that would make writings considerable to be in the canon. And I think those those requirements were rather reasonable. And we, we can kind of get into that a little bit, but does anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, that's good. And I think that you have to also, there's a, there's a different view in Protestants and Catholics as to how the canon uh, great point. was assembled and uh, what is the canon. So the, the Catholic doctrine is going to teach that the church defines the canon. The church says this is a canonical book. This is not a canonical book. Uh, versus the Protestant, a Protestant would say that the church discovered the canon. The canon was out there. The church simply had to um, realize which books were in the canon, which books were not. Because the, the question is, this, the, does the church give birth to the canon or does the canon give birth to the church? When we talk about the canon, we talk about the books that have been put together into how what we understand to be the book of the Bible. So when you pick up your Bible today, those books make up what we call the canon, just for, for our listeners. Right, and based on what Alex was saying earlier, yeah, there's there's uh, sometimes people will say, well, you know, there were other Gospels that were going around at the same time. How do you know that those four uh, were actually true Gospels? And uh, part of that is that you know, there are eyewitnesses, or in Luke's case, eyewitnesses were, were uh, interviewed. But also, if you read some of the Gnostic Gospels, for instance, there are scenes where... Uh, uh, Jesus talks about making Mary Magdalene into a man so that she can inherit the kingdom of God. And it's just weird theology like that that you just don't find elsewhere in the Gospels and that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So while people will sometimes say, well, you know, how do you know that uh, if people will sometimes question the actual canon without actually reading those other documents that didn't come about until several centuries later? Um, that if you spend the time to read them, I think you would realize, oh, yeah, I know why this isn't in. And I think it's important to understand that those questionable Gospels, there we have no textual evidence or manuscript evidence that they existed in the first century. Whereas, while we don't have full manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we do have fragments that are that can be dated even as early as in some portions of John. That can be dated even as early as 90 uh, AD. Um, there's a few scraps. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't there's know a, something yeah that. and I, we can actually put some of this in the show notes, but there's uh, Dan Wallace, um, who's a uh, respected New Testament scholar, shows a couple of those fragments. Uh, P57, I think, yeah. can be dated. I mean, I think conservatively it can be dated in, in the early 100s, but even some scholars say it can be dated much earlier than that. So um, these Gnostic Gospels that Josh uh, references, we really do not have any sort of evidence that they're early. Um, so they're later. We're talking probably around 300 or so, or we start seeing those kind of, those things kind of come up. Yeah, another view, another view of the Gospels or of those early early uh, early documents is that they weren't written within the first century, but they're kind of written a long time a long uh, time as it went. So as the church confronted certain issues and problems, they would make up a story about Jesus kind of to solve that issue. So as, you know, maybe the deity of Christ is in question, well, let's add a story that, you know, kind of gives Jesus deity explicitly. One of the problems with that is that you, you engage in what's called mirror reading. You you assume that there was an issue. You You read a text and you say, well, 
what issue does this text address? Well, then that issue must have been happening in the church in the first few centuries without actually proving that that issue happened. So you're assuming your conclusion, you're begging the question, you're assuming your conclusion before you reach it, if that makes sense. I, I know I know the question that a lot of people have is, um, yeah, it starts there, but who who assembled these books? Who decided this? When? Why? Once again, I think the misconception about that is that it was a couple guys uh, who were just kind of picking and choosing. Um, it was Eeny, a meeny, miny, mo. Mm, it was it was a uh, it was a church wide sort of decision, and 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 for the most part, there wasn't a By ton church of wide. Um, what was the structure of that? What like was it like all the churches in the area got together? Did they send representatives? Can you explain how that? Well, how I think that you worked? Have to, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but I don't think a canon was ever defined until Trent. Is that right? Well, no, there are there are letters from church fathers who, oh, sure. who laid out. But ecumenically, I don't think it was defined until Trent, but right. only because it was in response to the Protestants. So Luther comes up with his idea of justification by faith or discovers justification by faith. Catholics need a, an authoritative source to combat that with, which is why apocryphal books are defined as canon, which Protestants reject on many different levels and many different for many different reasons. But before Trent, it was more of like there's an understanding of what books are in and what books are out. If you read the Church Fathers, there are certain books that they all quote. Can you give us dates when you talk about Trent? Yeah, Trent was right after the Reformation. It was like 15-something, right? Yeah, it was, it was part of the Counter-Reformation. Yeah, uh, let's see. Now, before... before yeah, 1545 to 1563. So before 1545, during that time where Trent was happening, there was a different council that had decided... A I guess, a pre-Reformation canon, hadn't they? It was more just... Uh, from I don't what, think what so. I, what I understand is more just kind of generally accepted. So before then, it was just all of the letters were in there? Because no. I thought that, that in that in the 3rd and 4th centuries they had excluded some already. Uh, so before Trent, it was, it was simply... The church had a self-awareness of what books were inspired by God and what books were not, without having defined them. So they didn't exactly... I guess this is actually really helpful. They didn't exactly have a Bible at the time. They yeah, had they writings did. that the church they, had. They recognized the difference between, let's say, uh, Romans and the Shepherd of Hermas. Right. Or First Corinthians and the Didache or something like that. They recognized a, a, a difference between the two, though they used both devotionally and for church liturgy. But they and, and to be clear here, this was... Um, at a certain point, well, not at a certain point, uh, for, for most of Christian history up to the 1500s, when we say they, we are talking about the powers that be in the Catholic Church. We're, we're not talking about people like, like Josh and I or Alex who, who right. aren't leaders to in call the them church. The Catholic, to call them the Catholic Church would be a bit misleading because um, we're talking like the first... Well, the Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, but basically who, the leaders in the church. You can't call something the Roman Catholic Church until Trent, is what I would say, because that's when the differentiation was we're made. Call, we're, sure. talking pre, we're talking even pre-split between the Eastern and Western Church. Right, yeah. So if you look at if you look at Nicaea, for instance, what they're quoting and what they're alluding to, so Nice the Council of Nicaea, which defines the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, ecumenically church-wide, they're quoting books that we would consider canonical today, even though okay. there was no set list of these books are in it and these books are out. Really, there were only a few books in the first few centuries of the church that were even brought into question. 
Hebrews being one of them, because there's no author given. Ultimately, as time progressed, the church recognizes, no, this is something that's canonical, which is what I think gives so much strength to the Protestant view that the church discovers the canon and not that the church defines the canon. That seems to be the church's position until Trent, anyway, when they have to define a canon to support their Catholic doctrines of justification by works. And to be clear here again, I don't mean to be annoying, but by they, we mean the people in leadership. We're not talking about we're not talking about regular everyday Christians. But one of the well, but one of the criteria for the leadership to to go on was are these books well received among the general right, population exactly. of the church? So they, they would use these books in their ministry and see how the people responded to them. So they weren't making decisions for the people they were they had the congregations in mind. As they were trying to, rec- in the, in their own words, recognize which books were scripture or not. Well, that's kind of news to me. I, okay. I, I didn't think that the congregation involved at all. I mean, what did that look like? I didn't. But there's a widespread acceptance of certain documents. Yeah, but like in the churches, but the people in the churches don't don't make that decision. It's no, it wasn't congregational. It wasn't a democracy by any means. Exactly. No. I want to make that differentiation yeah. because until after the Reformation, we didn't even see social structures that they way. They weren't voting, but if they saw that books were... I mean, some books hung on to, hung on in their minds because they would see people reading them and benefiting from them spiritually and and see their faith being bolstered uh, by them. But yeah, I think Grudemann and Systematic Theology actually brings that out. Um, that that one of the criteria they used was to see how it was received among the people. That's that's new to me. I didn't know that. Yeah, we're breaking ground here, man. We always do that <laughs> on the exchange. So there's so and, and so there's a few other criteria too. Uh, one one of the other criteria uh, would one of the major ones was the author of the book in question either an apostle or closely related to an apostle. So Dana brought out a couple books that were not written by apostles. Uh, Mark and Luke. Uh, the question then is: Is were they influenced by an apostle? And the answer to that is yes. In Acts, you can see Paul and Luke being traveling companions. You know, you can even see a couple of veiled references to Luke, like in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians and stuff like that. The view of that would be that they were influenced by the apostles. Perhaps, da- uh, perhaps Alex represents a kind of a mediating position between the three of us here. Uh, just referencing back to how I how I understand the Bible uh, representing itself in the first episode. Uh, I think that the church didn't see themselves as the judge of this book is in and this book is out until really when they needed to at Trent. Before that, it was kind of, it, it was more of a position of, we recognize that this is canonical. We discover that this is canonical. It wasn't that there was a set of criteria that they sat and said yes no yes no yes no okay now we have these seven things let's go through this list of a hundred different documents okay only 66 of them make it uh that's not how that's not how it worked the 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 church the canon gave birth to the church and so the church responds by reading the canon i would agree with that yeah i would agree with all i would just tend to emphasize more the discovery part versus the uh, saying here are the seven criteria that we came up with as the church. Yes, this book is in, this book is I, out. I would, I would agree with that too. I think, I think for me and, well, I guess I can speak for myself. For me, I've always, I've always seen it happening um, like that, where things got a little heated and they were just like, we have to define this. And so they did. That That's how I've always understood it when, when I've learned about church history read a book or listen to it in class 
and maybe that was me projecting myself into the historical narrative but i think that's i think that's a common misconception of how the canon was assembled yes i think so too i i think um from from what we understand you don't have a complete list of the canon as we see it today as the new test or the the protestant canon until 367 with Athen in, in the letter of athanasius so we're talking 367 years where the letters would probably be written so so this was pre-trent then oh yeah yeah but it wasn't canonized it was just a it was just a letter he wrote a letter saying here's the bible this is one guy okay this is the first time that we have the 66 books that we consider canonical today written down on a list. Is that oh, what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Organized, but not institutionalized. Right, yeah, yes. exactly. But but my point in, in bringing that up is that the church fathers and the church uh, people were comfortable with letting these letters kind of filter through on their own throughout time. There was no big impetus to try to, to, try to grab hold and usurp the authority that the church might have. They were they were willing to test to test them and to see how they responded in order to which I think shows their intentions were not to create a canon but to recognize a canon. Right, because the question it, it, ultimately the church submitted itself to what the canon is. If if the canon was to come about, that's the only way that it could come about. It's not it shows it doesn't show apathy. It shows that yes, this this these documents have authority over us. We don't have authority over them. That's fair. Thanks, guys. How should the Bible affect your life? How, how should it affect your behavior, your attitudes, whatever? Or if you don't see the Bible at, as being in a category on its own, how should the Bible then affect your life? I like to kind of just talk about what, how, how should readers respond to this conversation of the scripture? And how should they go away from it saying, well, how should I respond to it? Should I read it? You know, et cetera. So I want to throw it out to you. And Daniel, I'll throw it to you first if if that's okay. I think the best way, as far as the way that I understand the Bible right now, this is is up to change, of course. I'm not very confident in the way I understand it. But when we read the book of Proverbs, we say, oh, this is what the good, this is what a good life looks like he's saying my son if you do these things your life will be better than if you do the opposite of these things so we have people who say okay you have to do these things and your life will be good and through living life they realize oh no you can do the right things and your life might still be terrible so you know if you raise your children in the way they should go they won't depart from it then you have christian parents who quote-unquote raise the kids in the way they should go and two out of five leave the church and three out of five stay in the church and you have no explanation for that Uh, obviously with new testament theology i think some people would apply an explanation there but that tells us that it's wisdom literature that it's this is the best way to do it this is the way that will have the best results nine out of ten correct so that's how I see the Bible. I'm not saying that all of it is wisdom literature. I'm just saying that it portrays a story that shows you what the best life is going to look like. And I think that the way that I interpret, especially Matthew 5 with Christ laying out the plan for his kingdom or the new kingdom to come, he's saying that in my kingdom, this is the way that life will operate. And I know I take a lot of that and apply it to politics, which a lot of people are maybe a little uncomfortable with. 
But to me, that's why I have a more, maybe a more um, moderate socialism when it comes to politics. Because I see, okay, Jesus said this is what his kingdom should look like. So today on earth, this is what we should seek to reflect our, our social structures. And that's that's how I see the Bible is saying, look, this is the best way that life can look. This is what the kingdom of Christ looks like. We should emulate that. Yeah, I, I agree with most of what Daniel just said. Um, I would say that the the function of the Bible in my life, uh, Romans 12, too, is that it, it has a transformative effect on my life. That as I read it, it shapes all of who I am. I would say I'm a bit skeptical. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay, man. Um, yeah, so Romans 12, 2 would say that the word of God transforms your mind. So it, it transforms the way you think, uh, the way you feel, and ultimately the way you act in order to bring about that kind of transformative effect that Daniel was talking about. That um, as God is reshaping the world into how he intends for it to be, uh, the Bible is the tool that he uses. And so reading the Bible, uh, reading the Bible shapes me as a person into the kind of person that will live the good life and will enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Good thoughts, guys. Yeah. Uh, just to add a little bit to it. Um, I think that when you take the perspective of Josh, I think then you make the scripture, the foundational filter for your worldview. And the worldview is probably a conversation we need to have in another episode. That'd be great. Uh, but, uh, but I think that becomes the foundation of everything you believe. So everything goes back to that and, and everything that's inconsistent with the scripture is then regarded as inconsistent in life. I think the only reason why I think where Josh and I would disagree is I don't think that all the answers to life are in the Bible. Um, in a very like annoying specific way. So like, you know what, like you can say, Hey, be wise with your money, save money. Sure. You can pull that out of the Bible. But should I invest in mutual funds? Should I play the stock market game? Yeah, and I think that it, like there's very specific answers where maybe I'm maybe I'm being a bit sarcastic in, in my hermeneutic here, but I say the Bible doesn't have the answer to everything. I think that I agree with you on that uh, to a certain extent, depending on what you mean by the but does the Bible have answers? So I would say that the Bible uh, is sufficient to address every issue in life. It's not going to give you a yes or no on everything. But it will give you a worldview, like they, like Alex was talking about, of principles. So hermeneutic. Yeah, it will for, give you for life. Yeah, it will give you hermeneutic for life okay. as you read it, as you become more acquainted with it. And I think that that's reinforced by the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last time. That the Holy Spirit testifies not only to what God teaches in His Word, but the Holy Spirit also testifies to you in life. The only the only reason I'm word. sketchy of of saying that the Holy Spirit then testifies to it is because there are so many different denominations and so many different socially active Christians who will find themselves on a completely different spectrum. So to me, it's like, it's, 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 does the Spirit speak against himself? Does, does the Spirit then say, well, I've been led to believe that this is what God intends, or like, this is what God says, and I'm like, that's hilarious because there's nine other people who are saying the same thing, but they're coming out with different outcomes. Which is, which is why Paul exhorted us to test the spirits. Sure, but then there's no objective answer. That's where I'm like, well, the Bible doesn't really get too specific. No, yeah, I think that this is, this is a whole other conversation. I would love to, like, we could have a whole episode on how does the Bible uh, relate to my life, <laughs> basically. Yeah, sure. But uh, I just wanted to lay out a few thoughts. 
and I think Daniel, you bring up a very valid point. I think, uh, I think the the verbiage you should use is the Bible is the final authority, and not the not the sole authority. So it is it is what everything comes back to. But you can find truth outside of the Scripture. That's you know, if we're talking about a big picture here, that ultimately also comes from God through His creating the created order. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a that's a good thought. But but to be specific here, to make a differentiation between what I'm saying, what Alex is saying, is that um, Alex would believe that the Holy Spirit guides you into what the truth of the Bible is, um, and I would say that that the Bible isn't going that the Holy Spirit isn't going to give you that. I just want to make a differentiation because I think people might be confused and say that what I'm saying is what you're you're saying, but I I think we see very different. I would love for you to, to flesh it out a bit, but I think we can say that for another episode. I'm not negating the I'm not negating the existence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not negating that the Holy Spirit Spirit may or may not influence the way people interpret the Bible. Um, I just think when you apply the Bible to your own life, I I think if you have the exp- this is what I found in my own, my own experience. So maybe I'm being too selfish here, but. If you have an expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to what the truth is, that the Bible will show itself through the Spirit, you're going to be very frustrated when you look at other Christians, unless you are you are convinced that the way you understand it is correct. When I ask myself, is the way I understand it correct, why is that? I can only ever come back to, well, it's my hermeneutic. Why have I adopted that hermeneutic? Well, it's easier for me because I've always been in a Protestant circle, because I've always been in a conservative evangelical world. But if I get, if I take myself outside of that world, I probably could say the same exact thing about a li- about a liberal Methodist who grew up in Pennsylvania. And it, they would say, "Well, I've always been in that, so it's easier for me to understand it that way." I don't have a biblical prescription for why, though, and that's all that I think. When I was living, saying, "Well, the Holy Spirit says this is the truth, so this is the truth." I, objectively i was very frustrated because i was like well there's other people who are saying the same thing for why they they think something differently from me i think i think it's i think it's problematic when we weaponize that when we say when we use it against other people i think the 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 intention of paul writing that especially in philippians that the spirit will lead you if if you are unconvinced of this the spirit will convince you of this eventually i think the i think the point of that is that the spirit is going to rip things out of my heart that are inconsistent with the scripture. And that is first and foremost, the practical nature of those admonitions in the scripture is that it's not, Oh, look, look, my, my philosophy agrees with the Bible. So I'm going to use the Bible as a weapon against you. That's not necessarily the first action. The first action is, is Paul wants you to understand how inconsistent your worldview is, your selfishness is, your understandings are inconsistent with God's ways and then allow the scripture to shape your heart. And then of course that flows into teaching others. But I think a lot of the times we like to weaponize it and that's not the way it's supposed to be. So coming back to what Daniel's saying, I think that one of the, one of the mysteries of Christianity is that uh, we are always refining and always reforming. We are always, we are always testing what we believe according to the scriptures and going back to that. And uh, the fact that people have other answers doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is deficient or that the Holy Spirit is deficient. It's simply a result of our fallenness, I think. That we would say that we sin has affected our minds, 
Uh, and because that, that should only produce humility in us that uh, I don't have all the answers. And I think that we need to, where, where the Bible is clear, we need to be firm in that. But where the Bible is less clear, uh, we cannot be dogmatic. And Christians are much better at talking than listening a lot of times. And we need to do a lot more listening. Uh, the golden rule to love my neighbor as I love myself should apply also to the fact that I need to sit down a lot and listen and not fight back um, when someone presents something that's opposed may, to mine. If I you may, know. a lot more exchanging. Ooh, much more exchanging. I've enjoyed this conversation, guys, and I look forward to talking more about it. Yeah, and if you guys have questions or if you disagree with something, please tell us on on Twitter or you can message us through Facebook. We'd love to continue that. Really, it is a conversation that that can be encapsulated into 15 to 30 minutes. So reach out and, and know that at least for me, I don't have the answers. For me, I don't feel comfortable where I'm at. I There's so much more that I have left to explore on this topic. And I think that I have less answers than I think I have. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I, I have, I have, tr- I know truth, um, and I know truth truly, but I don't know truth fully. And I'm always learning truth more fully. Thank you for listening to our conversation on the Exchange Podcast. We work hard to make each one of these episodes engaging and thought-provoking. And now it's your turn. Do you have any thoughts about today's episode? We'd love for you to join the Exchange online by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Links are in the show description. And while you're at it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. One more thing. We've received all of our music for Season 2 from HookSounds.com. There are some great tracks and artists available on that site. If you're looking for music for an upcoming project, we highly recommend you go with them. Thanks again for listening, and from all of us here at The Exchange Podcast, I'd like to wish you a good night and good luck.